Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francis Donald joins us now with Manulife. Francis, let me take that headline of continued tariffs. Can you make the assumption that any new tariffs diminish our economic growth? And if that's the case, what is your run rate for the economy into next year? Well, you know, in 2016, 2017, 2018, the economy was, and put lightly, booming. It was doing really well. It could take the near-term headwind of additional tariffs. What would worry me heading into 2020 and 2021 is, you know, we're still in the greatest economic shock in over 50 years. This is not the time to be putting additional headwinds on this economy. So you would find, I suspect, if you move towards additional tariffs, that you would have more downward revisions. But, you know, your question is really well framed, which is what is the run rate for the economy? And what we failed to talk about so much in COVID is what does the trend growth look like afterwards? Are we getting back to 2% growth? My suspicion is because of a lot of the damage created here, we're going to see a lot of people revising down their potential GDP numbers and tariffs are just going to make that worse. Well, meanwhile, though, sticking on the tariffs and the sort of deglobalization theme that we were talking about earlier with Sir Peter Westmacott, uh, the idea that a deglobalization wave, an increase in tariffs, will increase inflation, even if growth stays somewhat stagnant. Do you buy into that argument that a number of people are putting forth? Yes, we suspect that if we do see this ongoing deglobalization trend, which isn't just focused on U.S. and China, it's happening globally, that does contribute to moderate inflationary pressures. We see tons of potential for 25 to 3% inflation in the United States. I will say that's more U.S.-focused than it is around the rest of the world. And again, pre-COVID, we were really fighting, fighting deflation. We were looking at sub-2% inflationary pressures. Now, because of a supply-side shock, movements in U.S. dollar, commodities, the Fed is going to be focusing more on what it does with slightly above 2% inflation. So now if you add on that global deglobalization shock, this is a very different paradigm to be implementing trade wars. It's going to yield very different outcomes than what it did, or, or differently put, you know, have a different impact on the economy, uh, worsening some of the challenges that we're probably going to face over the next two to five years. This is conventional economic wisdom, Francis, so it's not controversial. But let me ask you this question right here. Last night, the vice president had to sit across from someone who was talking about undoing the work that they'd done. And you could see he took offense to it. He was talking about the tax regime and the tax cut that the vice president, the president of this administration had pushed through. The candidate to become the vice president, Kamala Harris, said they would undo that on day one. They said there would be no tax hikes for anyone under, earning under 400K. She made that clear several times, but the corporate tax rate didn't come up. Not in any detail. And I wonder how you would process that. If, if the next couple of months they took control of the White House and the administration had the power to get this through Congress, if they undid that corporate tax cut of several years ago, how would that shift for the American economy? So you say this is conventional thinking, but actually so much of what's happening with deficits, government debt and the role of government, that conventional thinking is being flipped on its head as we explore more things like modern monetary theory and maybe the idea that deficits aren't so bad. Regardless of who wins, we should be preparing for exceptionally large deficits 
and the highest level of government debt to GDP that we have seen in American history, or at least in the past 200 years. So we're going to be having very big conversations about what those deficits and large debt mean. From my perspective, it means no matter who wins, yes, what they spend on will change, but you are going to see phenomenal issuance at the long end of the curve, and you will see ongoing acceptance of the idea that large deficits are okay. That means a steepening of the curve, particularly at the long end, and it probably means we need to reevaluate that role of government in this economy. Government is going to get bigger in the U.S. and global economy. It's probably going to become a larger employer, and I suspect that that is regardless of who wins. And that's the main tradable theme here, not trying to game what comes out of November 3rd or the following two weeks after that, but what are the seismic shifts that have occurred? And, and I think really that's turning conventional thinking on its head. Well, Francis, when we came out of the last election, there was all this happy talk about infrastructure spending and the Trump trade turned out to be something very different. It was the tax cut trade at the end of the day through 2017-18. And I just wonder, I'm trying to get my hands around what this would mean for the equity market, because the approach right now is a glass half full. Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley using that line overnight in an interview with us. And I just wonder, Francis, for you, whether that's a complete picture, because, yes, there will be some fiscal stimulus, regardless of who wins this election, but one party is talking about hiking corporate tax rates again. The other one isn't. I do not believe that this economy will be in a position in the next 18 months to take any form of material tax hikes. We are sitting right now feeling really good because a lot of our economic data has shown V-shaped recoveries. But a lot of that V-shaped recoveries are red herrings. Housing is not behaving as it typically does. Auto is not behaving how it typically does. We have, I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen here, um, um, 11 million Americans who are on claims right now. We are extremely vulnerable to any type of disruption. And yes, if things go well, we get a fiscal package, we aid Americans through the next six to 12 months, then we can absolutely continue on a road to recovery and make these tax changes. But if there is an additional shock, if there is an accident, whether it's geopolitical or financial, then we are staring down the possibility and the growing tail risk of a double dip here. Now is not the moment for large structural changes. It is the moment to build a bridge to the other side. We are still in an incredibly vulnerable moment in the U.S. economy. Similarly, a message for both parties at the moment. Francis, fantastic to catch up. Francis Donald there of Manulife Investment Management. Thank you. Right now, we're going to rip up the script and then rip it up again and rip it up again through the morning with Rick Davis, formerly the campaign manager for Senator McCain of Arizona and, of course, a Bloomberg contributor. Rick, what is the debate commission like? How do the candidates and their staff like you go back and forth with the debate condition? Are you the boss or is the debate commission the boss? Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard answer because uh, nobody's the boss. The commission sets up a bunch of rules. They pick a bunch of sites. Then they sit down with the nominees of the party. They do this years in advance. And then they sit down with the nominees of the party and they start negotiating. And out of that negotiation comes some version of that schedule and those rules. Uh, some of those negotiations are directly between the two candidates. Uh, we had Lindsey Graham as our negotiator and Rahm Emanuel was the negotiator for Barack Obama. And we actually got so frustrated with the debate commission, we decided we were just going to do the debates ourselves. Then we realized the logistics on that was too much. And we went back to the commission. But the rules the commission put together are meant to be standardized and that you then create a memorandum right. of understanding. Okay, but Rick, that's brilliantly explained. Huge public value. It's not a standardized time. Is the president, what's his power here as president 
as candidate and with his visibility, obviously, and his vocal uh, treatment, what's his ability to change the commission or make a more malleable process to get to his outcome? Yeah, you can always say no, and that's what the president's saying this morning. I would say, though, the debate commission would never have announced that they did uh, agree on a virtual debate unless somebody in the Trump campaign had said yes to that. So this is another example of Donald Trump not being connected to the leadership of his campaign and, and now going rogue on the debate commission and probably the Biden campaign because the Biden campaign would have signed off on this format, too. I would say we tried this in the primaries in 2000 when I ran John McCain's campaign against George W. Bush. And we didn't want to do a debate because of logistics. It was on the other side of the country, and we were trying to campaign to win. And the press pressure on us to participate in that debate forced us to do a virtual debate where the two of us were on different sides of the country. And for my purposes, that was a disaster. But yeah. virtual Rick, debate just to jump in, just some response from the campaign that I want to bring to our audience very quickly. They will pass on the sad excuse for a debate. The campaign will hold a rally instead of that remote debate. So it looks like the president and the campaign on the same page here, Rick. I just wonder from your perspective, with this poll just coming in from Fox News, with Biden having a 53 to 43 lead nationally, where do you see the polls right now? Because I read the polls out this morning. I've gone through the numbers multiple times. And Tom just curls up into a ball thinking about four years ago. What are they worth right now? Rick, how do you read the polls? Yeah, so first of all, you got to understand, polls are a static picture. They're not dynamic. They don't take people's opinions over time. They take them in one instance. So they're only accurate that day. And in a campaign that's moving around, like four years ago, where you had all these massive black swan events in October, you know, whether it was the Hollywood uh, uh, video or Comey uh, reopening the investigation of Hillary, the polls don't take that into consideration. They only give you a snapshot. So what we know today is that Biden has some momentum, some movement toward him since the last debate, including the period of time that, that, that the president uh, contracted COVID. And it looks like some of that movement is in a new voter group, not just suburban women, but white males. And that is a signal to Trump that he may have a Trump problem with his base. Rick, how much momentum did Mike Pence give to the Trump campaign last night? You know, I think that he stabilized the Trump campaign. I mean, think about what's happened in one week. The, 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 the Trump uh, debate was a disaster a week ago for Donald Trump. Uh, he almost immediately con uh, contracted COVID, and then he blew up his own negotiations over the stimulus. That's one week. That's an amazing amount of activity. And so I think last night what, what Mike Pence did was something that the campaign hasn't been able to do before with the candidate. And that is stabilize the debate. His set of facts, his diagram of where the country is headed is exactly what the Trump campaign has been selling. And he did a good job delivering that. Did a very confident job. Just to wrap things up, Rick, very quickly, we had the former New York mayor, Rudy Giuliani, on the program yesterday. And without much did prompting we? or encouragement, he came out swinging. What we see today is the campaign coming out swinging against the debate commission. This is that classic siege mentality in the final few weeks of the campaign. Everyone's against us. Is this a strategy that's going to work, Rick? Is it working? Uh, well, you know, the bunker is a very nasty place to have to occupy. And that's where the Trump campaign is right now. Not only is their top leadership out with COVID, uh, but the polls are turning against them. I would say 
The one thing that sort of defies that is the nimbleness or lack thereof of Donald Trump's addressing the stimulus negotiations. He's flip-flopped now three times in three days. Um, it, there's no question that, that Congress wants a stimulus. They know what the public uh, needs and, and what the Fed is, is requiring. And so uh, I think that uh, the decision-making at the top has always been Donald Trump. There's no campaign that's going to get in his way. Uh, he's running the bus, and the bus is veering all over the road, and that does not help him collect the votes he needs for Election Day. Rick, wonderful to catch up to get your insight. Rick wonderful. Davis there, the former McCain campaign manager and Bloomberg <clears throat> contributor. Michael Moore joins us right now, head of all of our finance, and we're thrilled he could take time out from a hellacious day as well. Michael Moore, is there any evidence from your team that if you roll up an industry, profits go up? <laughs> uh, I don't know that profits go up, but there is this feeling that scale matters in the asset management business as more and more of the money moves to passive uh, so that you can't uh, survive as a niche player. Uh, not that either <clears throat> Eden Vance or Morgan Stanley was exactly niche, but they weren't part of the trillion-dollar club of the behemoth, and now together they, they join that club. Will they add profit to Morgan Stanley's income statement? Yeah, I think that's the idea. I mean, James Gorman has really reshaped Morgan Stanley. I mean, it started with the Smith-Barney deal uh, in the financial crisis, and now this year you have E-Trade and you have mm -hmm. Advance. And um, well, I think his strategy yeah. is those all can work together, and now you know, the traditional right. investment bank is less than half the firm. Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide, Michael Moore bringing up the elephant in the room. Let's go to someone with some experience on Smith Barney, Paul Sweeney. <laughs> exactly right. How did that go? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. Smith Barney, it's just, uh, you know, just a behemoth, you know, just a, a tremendous mm. amount of brokers out there. It gives them immediate uh, retail presence. Michael, I mean, when you think about Morgan Stanley here, Give us a sense of where their asset management business kind of ranks uh, in the world of asset management, which is facing uh, pressure on fees. Yeah, I mean, it was always seen uh, as one of the smaller players, at least among the bank asset managers. You have Goldman and J.P. Morgan uh, with huge businesses uh, on the asset management side. Morgan Stanley was always a bit smaller, especially – after the financial crisis, they sold their Van Campen business. Uh, and, you know, Gorman later said he regretted that move. So this seems to be uh, right. reversing that and then some. BlackRock's got 30-something percent operating margin. Morgan Stanley's a little lighter on that. Obviously, the goal is to get operating margin up as well. How do you actually affect this, Michael Moore? I mean, today's a day where nobody talks about job cuts or overlays and overlaps. I mean, what happens to the, say, 2,000 people at Eaton Vance? Right, right, right. I think you probably will see some, uh, some overlap there. Uh, you know, but the thing for the banks is not just the operating margin, but the return on equity and the really attractive uh, piece of both asset management and wealth management is the capital charges are so much lower than the trading and investment banking sides of the business. So it's interesting, Michael, I'm looking at the uh, BQ function for Morgan Stanley. I'm looking at the stock is down about 4.7% 
uh, year to date, doing better than its peers. Is that a validation of Mr. Gorman's focus on uh, you know, private wealth as opposed to maybe some of the more volatile capital markets businesses? Yeah, I think you'd have to say that, especially in a year where uh, the traditional trading businesses have done quite well. Um, so the fact that they're holding up even in that environment uh, does seem to validate that strategy. Uh, you know, Gorman saying today that it's a happy coincidence that they're doing these deals while mm-hmm. uh, the investment banking side of things is doing uh, is doing quite well, at least in the first half. Oh. And we'll learn more on the next week on the third quarter. Michael Moore, thank you so much. Getting ready for next week is biggest week of the uh, 90 day swing. Michael Moore, head of our U.S. finance team, uh, all of our coverage of global uh, Wall Street. Right now, widely anticipated for you, Abby Joseph Cohen joins us with Goldman Sachs, our advisory director and senior investment strategist. And of course, the lay of the land here is when Abby Joseph Cohen tries to synthesize our economics and our finance into a belief in the equity markets. All listen, whether they agree or disagree. Abby, just simply now, can you at the margin acquire equities this morning? That's a terrific question, Tom, for traders. Um, And the answer is, uh, of course, it depends upon your time horizon. Uh, The Goldman Sachs house view is that S&P 500 is currently modestly undervalued. And of course, that's based upon the straight arithmetic, what we expect for corporate profits, but also very importantly, what we expect from the Fed. And if you think the Fed is going to stay friendly, then there could be some room to grow in the equity market. By the way, not just in the United States, but in the other major markets as well. However, what we've discovered is that there is intense volatility uh, and it has been rising. That is not unusual uh, as we approach a major election in the United States. And also as we see that there has been some erratic movement with regard to Mm -hmm. fiscal policy. It's not just the Fed. We're also now looking at what happens to the stimulus bill. I think it was very clear over the last few days, FOMC and other statements from the Fed, that they believe we need another stimulus package. Speaker Pelosi with David Weston here in the 12 noon hour. Abby, I want to go back to 1987 when it was just so darn simple. John Templeton was there. Schreyer was there of Merrill Lynch. Robert Kirby and they talked to Lou Rukeyser about the simplicity of a stock market major crash, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there is so much complexity. There is so much information flow. How do you stay with a conviction call on equities given the complete cacophony of information that we have? You know, 1987 was a market event. Uh, Basically, the economy had not been afflicted by what ever was going on. So it was okay to go back to those models, do a calculation about valuation. That is not the situation right now. And I have to tell you that I am quite concerned that there could be considerable downside as well, depending on any number of factors that we can't fit easily into our models. This includes what will the Congress do? 
What will the president say? And of course, the election outcome. And so those of us who have lived uh, uh, our professional lives really focusing in on the math, uh, I think should feel very humble right now because what we recognize is that the models may not be able to properly reflect all of the volatility, not just in the markets, but in the economy, in policy, and also, of course, in investor sentiment. One other thing, within the equity market itself, there are wide gaps in relative valuation. And that tells us something, too. When markets rising, uh, what we see is that there are just a handful of stocks that tend to drive that performance. And that, of course, could make the market more suspect as well and more volatile and vulnerable should there be some disappointments with regard to just a small handful of those particular issues. Abby, well, good morning from London. What, what exactly Hi. is the market you think pricing in at the moment? And when you say, you know, it is very difficult to read what the U.S. election will bring in terms of composition of the House or even, you know, a giving of power if Joe Biden were to win. So how does the market react in that case? When we take a look at a lot of the surveys that are done of investors, uh, what we're seeing is the I don't want to say presumption, but the increasing probability of, let's call it, the blue wave. Uh, there seems to be in probability that Mr. Biden will be elected based upon polling. Uh, there is the possibility that the Senate uh, could switch over to the Democratic column. And of course, there is the presumption, this is a presumption, uh, that the House uh, will stay blue. And what we're seeing from investors uh, over the last uh, several days is that a blue wave might not be such a bad thing because it would give us more certainty with regard to policy, particularly with regard to the use of fiscal policy to help our economy at this point. The general sense is that while the economy is recovering, it is recovering slowly, number one. Number two, there are structural problems that need to be addressed in terms of long-term unemployment, some of the industries that have been very hard hit. And these are things that interest rate policy writ large doesn't really help. It has to be done uh, through fiscal policy. And so what we basically see is that investors are now looking at the possibility of movement toward uh, the Democrats uh, that may in fact uh, be viewed in, in a positive way. And here I'm talking about not the short-term modeling uh, based upon what's happening in this year's corporate profits and so on, but rather the longer-term outlook uh, for 21 and beyond. What does it mean for how? So uh, let's say we do have a Biden administration with actually, you know, also Democrats in the House. What does it mean for what the how the economy will change in the U.S.? Yeah, one of the things I, I believe that I've picked up anecdotally, and I stress this is anecdotally, is that when I speak to investors, there is some uncertainty as to uh, what the president. Uh, plans would be in a second uh, second term. Uh, so there's not really an understanding uh, beyond tax policy in terms of what would happen. There's been disappointment, for example, in terms of no follow-up on infrastructure policy. Uh, there are concerns in terms of what would happen with regard to uh, regulatory policy, particularly as it relates to some environmental issues. And there are also some concerns as it relates to health care. 
Now, one of the things that many investors are now concerned about, as are many voters, is that we have a, a rise in unemployment. Fortunately, it has been moving lower. One of the reasons it's moving lower is not just because jobs are being restored. We've now restored about half of the 22 million jobs that were lost. Uh, but we also see that people are stepping out of the labor force. And just the arithmetic of what is an unemployment rate, um, the denominator is the number of people in the labor force looking for jobs. And we see that that number has been getting smaller. Um, and that is of concern. Um, uh, to many people. Uh, and so when we take a look at what investors are concerned about now, not much concern about what this quarter's earnings will be mm -hmm. or next quarter. And even for 2021, even though the, the uh, Goldman Sachs view is a little bit stronger than the consensus, the general view is that world economic growth will be jumping up well, 6 to 8% um, next year, in part because of a low base. But what mm -hmm. happens after that? And what happens to some of the structural problems that have been unveiled uh, by, in fact, this, this very difficult pandemic? Well, with us, Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs, an advisory director and senior investment strategist. Abby, you know, I kid about a three-hour conversation. There's so many good research pieces your shop is putting out on the bigger, broader view. But I really must come back to China and the collapse, the lessening of world trade. It's a serious issue. How do we fix it? It's an enormously serious issue, Tom. And we think that one of the best approaches um, is to work with our economic allies uh, to fix this. And that's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership was all about. Uh, this was a group of approximately 15 countries with the United States at the head and other nations that are either based in Asia or do a great deal of trade in Asia. And the one exception to the membership was China. The idea was to create an economic alliance that would have some pushback against what China is trying to do. Um, and one of the very first things that the Trump administration did upon taking office was to remove the United States from the TPP. But that organization <clears throat> continues on. And what we basically see is that without U.S. leadership, uh, the member states that remain uh, are having a little more difficulty than they might mm -hmm. have had uh, in terms of pushing back against China. Uh, so I, I think that that was a problem. Uh, the other thing, of course, that we need to do is to make sure that we have appropriate trade alliances in other parts of the world uh, as well, in, including Europe. Um, and what we have seen uh, is is uh, very difficult actually to decipher in terms of how much of the deterioration in trade uh, for the United States well, has been related to trade <clears throat> policy versus, of course, the deterioration in the global economy writ large. But, Abby, we're at a twin deficit that's absolutely extraordinary. Stephen Roach, ex-Morgan Stanley, and of course, as you know, Abby, Dr. Roach at Yale University, uh, now really points out this, this multiple deviation move in our twin deficit. Are you optimistic we can get that back to mean? Or is there a new permanence here to our challenge fiscal and trade deficits? 
You know, we can talk about the numbers, Tom, and I'll do that for just a moment, and to say that we have never seen numbers like this. Yes. Uh, when we look at the deficit, the best way to look at it is as a percentage of GDP, and it's currently running about 15%, which is simply astronomical. Uh, one of the big questions, however, is how are we using that deficit, um, number one, and number two, can we grow out of it? Uh, and I believe that the numbers this year, as horrifying as they are, don't really tell us as much as we need to know about the future. So, for example, uh, if we look at the Congressional Budget Office, it looks like those deficit numbers will start moving somewhat lower. However, let's think about this. How are we using the money that we, we have in terms of the fiscal stimulus and so on? If we use it to grow the economy, if we use it to provide relief where relief is needed, that is absolutely essential. Um, and, and so it becomes a question not just of the numbers, but what happens with them. Um, you know, Steve Roach, who I worked with as a child um, at the Federal Reserve in Washington many years ago, uh, makes some very interesting points. And one of the things that I believe we need to talk about, again, is not just the twin deficit, but what does it mean for currency? What does it mean for the U.S. dollar? Um, thus far, uh, we are seeing that the dollar is okay, but in recent weeks and months, uh, we see that the dollar is coming off its high levels that it achieved early in 2020. It's something that's worth watching because, as you well know, our treasury market uh, often depends upon uh, foreign buying. Uh, and, and so we'll right. be watching that. Yeah. The other thing to watch is foreign direct investment. That is, how much are companies directly investing in the United States? I'm not talking about portfolios, stock portfolios. I'm talking about whether foreign companies are actually investing in the United States, new factories and so on. This is not a good year to be measuring that because there's not much of that new construction going on anywhere. Abby, is, is the money going to the right places? I mean, you know, you said it beautifully. It needs to make sure that you're addressing the concerns in the economy so that we can grow out of this debt. Where should it go to? And are, are the current people in charge, you know, going to put it where it should be? So not propping up actually, you know, I guess old energy or not propping up companies that wouldn't survive. Well, let's, let's start pre-pandemic. Uh, one of our concerns had been um, where the money from the corporate tax cut went. Uh, we all know that with a sharp reduction in the effective tax rate of corporations, profit margins went up, cash levels went up. And in many industries, that cash was not used for growth. Instead, it was used to buy back shares, increase dividends. That's great for investors short term. But long term, what investors need are companies that are using their cash and their profits to invest in the future. And we really didn't see enough of that. Um, and so that's one thing that we're looking at. Which industries could be helpful. Uh, we are looking, for example, at what happens in terms of where are the future growth industries. Advanced manufacturing actually did see some increases. You know, when we talk about manufacturing, there are the differences between uh, those things that are more commodity-like and those things that are more advanced. And the United States continues to right. do well in those categories. We need to focus there. We need to focus on infrastructure. And it's not just the roads and the bridges and the airports as much as we need those and we need to mm -hmm. repair those. And that creates 
creates a lot of jobs. We also need to invest heavily in broadband. If we take a look at the parts of this country that are really right. suffering because they don't have it, it is the rural areas. And there are some urban deserts as well that don't have well, broadband coverage. Here in the city of New York, 97% coverage. There are some neighborhoods that don't have it. But when you go to the Midwest, you go to other parts of the country, we're looking at coverage broadband of 60 percent those kids those are not able to study remotely those businesses are afflicted and you can't create as many new jobs there mm -hmm. as you might like abby i want you to stay with us and i promise you abby i'm not going to ask you about individual companies but this is a hugely important and symbolic story for global wall street international business machines will do what has been demanded for years they are basically going to split up into two companies. They are going cloud. It is all the vogue. And as Abby Joseph Cohen mentions, there is a talk of technological infrastructure is being dated and they will split that off. This is Arvind Krishna. This is the new IBM coming in in the spring of this year, creating a revolution after underperformance. 10 years trailing IBM per year. I'm going to call it 3% per year stock appreciation. The dividend trades like an electric utility in Germany, 5 or 6% with moldy single-digit dividend growth. Abby, I don't want you to talk about IBM. You'd be put in the David Costin timeout chair. But I do want you to talk about creative destruction in technology. This is one of your wheelhouses. It is inevitable that they clear out of old technologies, isn't it? All of the companies in the greater technology area. Well, Tom, you are making a very valuable case um, and one that I think has great validity. And the good fortune in the United States is a lot of the newer technologies and the leading technology companies are based here. And one of the things we, of course, need to encourage is this sort of creative discretion, excuse me, creative uh, uh, destruction, not just in technology, but in a whole host of, of other industries as well. And one of the things that the pandemic has done has been to push us even more dramatically in that direction. Technology writ large is doing well in the pandemic because we all need technology to get our work done for those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to work from home. Yeah. But there are so many other industries that have been terribly afflicted uh, by this pandemic uh, in terms of their employment and, and so on. And what we are seeing is that when we are emerging, as we have begun to do, uh, as this recession is easing up and we are seeing growth now, what we are seeing, however, is that there are some industries that are lagging okay, behind. But Abby, just because of time, I, I, I need sure. to get one more question in, Abby, before we start your busy uh, day. And that is the new regulation of Washington against Facebook, Apple, the winners as well. They're not going after international business machines, which is a failed plan. We all agree with that. You and I remember across the Bloomberg terminal when the Justice Department dumped the Microsoft case. Are you worried about the regulation of America's technologically successful companies? I am always worried about inappropriate regulation. You know, capitalism works best with regulators who understand what the focus should be, and that is to enhance economic growth. 
Um, and so what we have in that particular report um, is uh, something that is an analysis. It's analysis. It's not necessarily a blueprint for what would happen in terms of regulatory moves. Uh, recognize that it's not necessarily the Congress that will be making the ultimate decisions in this. What they've done, however, is raise a number of very interesting red flags, some of them more relevant than others. Uh, but this is just the beginning of the discussion. I think there's a lot more to come. Uh, the professional regulators, of course, will be uh, much more dramatically involved uh, than they have been well, uh, to this point. Abby, thank you so much. Generous of your time today, particularly on this breaking news. Abby Joseph Cohen uh, with Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.